John 12. We'll begin in verse 18 this evening. Last week we left off in verse 17 of John 12. The title of the message, Effective Evangelism. We sang songs about evangelism this evening. Our monthly verse was Matthew 28, 18, and 20, often known as the Great Commission. We had missions conference. We chartered. We've started door knocking. All of these things uh, have uh, been going on. I trust that your heart and your mind have been turned to some degree toward the thoughts of winning souls. As we begin this evening, I ask a question. What does it take to be an effective soul winner? What does it mean to be an effective soul winner? Maybe even a better question. What does it take to be an effective soul winner? Better question, what does it mean to be an effective soul winner? As we look into John 12 this evening, we are going to follow a string of emphasis. I originally, when I originally wrote this sermon, I wrote it as a gospel message. I wrote it as a salvation message when um, I was praying about it and thinking about it and recognizing that it was going to be on Sunday night instead of Sunday morning and these sorts of things. I changed it to an evangelism message and that's perfectly easy to do in in a manner of speaking because if a message is about soul winning, then it is also about evangelism. Because when we are hearing the gospel presented, we are also learning how to give the gospel. When we are hearing the gospel, we are learning how to reflect the gospel to others. And so this evening, through John 12, I would like us to see five principles that teach us how to be effective evangelists. Five principles that teach us how to be effective evangelists. That word evangelist comes from a Greek word which literally means a bearer of good news. Now there is the office of evangelist as we've seen in scripture and the office of evangelist is something that God is someone that God has called to be a man that goes into regions that have not heard and tells of the good news. But the scriptures tell us that we all have the responsibility of bearing the good news, of sharing the good news. And so we're going to look at five principles that teach us how to be effective evangelists this evening. And we will begin in John 12, verse 18. Look at it with me. Jesus Christ, excuse me, um, Jesus Christ not speaking here. The scriptures say, For this cause the people also met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle. That would be the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. Behold, the world is gone after him. The first principle I would like us to see this evening about effective evangelism is number one, be a yielded vessel. Principle number one, be a yielded vessel. We begin this message with a very strong admission of the Pharisees in verse 19, that the whole world had gone after Christ. Now, by this, they certainly were not saying that every man and every woman in the world had believed on Jesus Christ unto salvation. We know that to be true because they haven't believed on Christ to salvation. They were, however, recognizing something. What they were recognizing was that the message of Jesus Christ and the works that accompanied his message 
that these works and this message was touching the soul of every listener and convicting every heart that heard it of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So the world recognized, the whole world recognized that this man had truth. The whole world recognized this gospel as truth. The whole world recognized that Jesus Christ was Savior. Now that doesn't mean the whole world accepted but that's what they were saying here is that, that those who had come into contact with Jesus Christ, that those who had seen him, his miracles, heard his teaching, knew that this man had authority, knew that this man was Messiah. One of the distinctives of the gospel is this, and we mentioned it in the prayer this evening, that the gospel is a whosoever will gospel. Look at verses 20 through 22 says, And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. And Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. See, not only were the Jews coming to seek Jesus, but these Greeks who had come down around the Passover time, perhaps they were um, Greeks who um, were recognizing the, the truths of the Old Testament law and of the Jewish religion and had come down to observe Passover in some capacity. Perhaps these were Jews that had been born in Greek, uh, often called Grecians or Hellenists. And so they were, in fact, worshipers of Jehovah, yet they were um, assimilated into Greek culture to some way, shape, or form. We're not quite sure um, what the connection was or what they believed, but they came after Jesus because this gospel didn't just resound in the hearts of the Jews. This good news echoed in the hearts of everyone who heard it. The gospel does not choose one culture, one race, one gender, or one region. The gospel is not designated for a chosen few. There is no age requirement on the gospel. And though Jesus openly testified that He Himself was sent exclusively to minister to the lost sheep of Israel... The scriptures have always made it clear that God is no respecter of persons and that his heart cries out for all men to be saved. We see it in Jonah with the Ninevites. We see it with Rahab, the harlot, in Joshua. We see it through Esther, the Moabitess. We see it all throughout the scriptures that God desires men and women to see him and to come to him. Now the disciples told Jesus that some Greek men sought to meet with him. And notice his response, beginning in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth this life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. What an interesting response. These two disciples come up and say, Jesus, these men would like to speak with you. And he says, first of all, that his time is come. Now we've come to expect this. Jesus has said this many times in the last few days of his, of his life up to this point in the record of John. His time is come. But then he makes a chain of statements within the context of this idea of his time being short, of his time being come, that we need to look at a little closer. 
The first thing he says is in verse 24, that when a corn of wheat is separated from its life, it multiplies. It's an amazing truth that when a seed of wheat is attached to the stalk, when it's quite green, when it's still attached to that, that um, vine that gives it nutrients, that grain of wheat is no greater than itself. What you see is what you get. That grain of wheat is a grain of wheat. There's nothing more than a grain of wheat in it. But when that seed dries, when it falls off the stalk, in this separation from the stalk, this seed bears a greater potential for life than anything that it had while it was attached. Because as it falls to the ground, if it falls into the earth, it can spring forth into not just one grain of wheat, which is what it was on the stalk, but multiple grains of wheat. That is the picture that Jesus Christ is giving here. That when that seed, and the, the, the word here for death can also mean separation. When that seed separates from the stalk and falls into the ground, when it was, just, when it was on the stalk, it was just a grain of wheat. That's all it was. But when it falls off, when it's separated from its lifeline and it falls into the, the soil, it can bring forth abundantly of itself. The second statement he makes is in verse 25. The man that loves this life will lose it and the man that hates his life will keep it unto life eternal. We've talked about this word hate before. Oftentimes in Scripture, when this word hate is used, it's not used in the way that we think of hatred. We think of hatred as loathing, uh, as something that we despise or dislike. But you know, hatred in the Scriptures doesn't always mean that. Usually, it simply means to reject, to place lower in value. And so Jesus Christ is not saying here, as has been sometimes interpreted throughout church history, that if we want to gain eternal life, we need to hate ourselves. And we need to cut ourselves and whip ourselves and do all of these things against ourselves to punish ourselves. The Word of God is not saying that. Jesus Christ is not saying that. What He is saying is we need to place our life of lower value than of Christ's word. We need to place our life of lower value than the gospel. And he says that when we take that which we care about and we love, our life, our, our livelihood, the material goods that are around us, and when we place them lower in value than the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's when our life begins. That's when our life springs up. That's when we have the abundance within us unto eternal life. So just like the seed of wheat, do you see the connection? Do you see the train of thought? Just like the seed of wheat, when it's attached to the stalk, is no greater than itself. So too, you and I are no greater than ourselves when we are attached to this world. When you are relying upon yourself, when you are attached to yourself, when, then you're no greater than yourself. You're no greater than your accomplishments. You're no greater than the car you have in your garage. You're no greater than the house you have. And that's why people are trying to accomplish so much. That's why people are heaping things to themselves because that is what defines them. But then where is their greatness when they go into the grave? Because all of those things that defined their greatness are left on this earth as they leave it. But when we're attached to this life, we are no greater than ourselves. But you know, when we die, 
when we are separated from the stock, when we are separated from this world, when we die to ourselves and when we die to this world, we bear potential for life greater than anything we could have had while we were attached. Not only do we bear a a potential springing up into eternal life, but we bear the potential of bearing fruit in that life. Now, Jesus finishes this statement clarifying it in verse 26. That the man who would serve Jesus must be a follower of Jesus. And the man that follows Jesus by dying to self, dying to this world, is the man that will receive honor of the Father. The honor of eternal life. The honor of hearing those words which I trust you desire to hear so badly. Well done. Thou good and faithful servant. Now as Jesus spoke these things, he did speak them in two contexts. I have related them to your life, but his immediate, most immediate context was really to himself. That his time had come. His time had come to die. And when he dies, and specifically when he rises from the grave, he will pave the way for all other men to live. The death of Jesus Christ paves the way for all other men to live. That when Jesus Christ dies, the fruit that is born is going to be the fruit unto eternal life in your heart and in mine. In your life and in mine. In your soul and in mine. But of course, he's speaking to his disciples as well. That when you and I die to self, when we die to this world, through belief on Jesus Christ, this decision bears fruit. It bears fruit unto eternal life. And as disciples, when we die to self and to this world, when we are a yielded vessel unto our God, our lives bear the fruit of righteousness. And the fruit of righteousness brings glory to God and brings others into the fold. And so if you want to be an effective evangelist, principle number one, you need to be a yielded vessel. You need to be willing and yielded to God. You need to be obedient so that you can bear the fruit of righteousness in your life. Death to self. Death to this world. Second principle in verses 27 through 33 this evening. First, be a yielded vessel. Principle number two, recognize who does the work. Recognize who does the work. Jesus declares his greatest desire for his life in ministry in verses 27 and 28. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I into unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. His desire above all things in his life and ministry was that the Father's will would be accomplished and that the Father would be glorified in him. Following Jesus' prayer, we just read it, a voice came from heaven. Now the people didn't quite know what to make of this voice when they heard it. Some thought it was thunder. Others said an angel spoke. Well, if they had been listening, and I, I guess to some degree or another they must have been listening, they would have known that it was the Father. But we'll see in a moment why, why they were so confused. Well, in their confusion, Jesus explains this voice to them in verses 30 to 32. He explains that this voice from heaven was not for His benefit. 
He didn't need to hear the Father say, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. He knew that God would glorify His name because He was in and aligned with God's will. It was for the people's benefit. See, the people needed to know that the gift of salvation was about to be purchased. The people needed to know that the glory of God was about to be accomplished, fulfilled, greatly increased through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And, Jesus said, when He is lifted up to the earth, He will draw all men to Him. Verse 32, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This statement is very, very important. Say, Pastor, why is it so important? Do you you remember way back in John 6? John 6, verse 44, Jesus told His disciples this, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. No man can come unless he is drawn. The only way a man can be saved is by responding to the drawing of God. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit in the life of an unregenerate man. And so the supernatural drawing of that man through conviction and the testimony of the Holy Spirit is imperative. But that can lead to some pretty problematic, very errant theology if we're not careful. If we're not careful, we say that because it must be God that draws men unto salvation, that only certain men are drawn and therefore only certain men can be saved. That only certain men have felt that draw and that as soon as they feel that draw, they cannot help but respond to that draw. And so those men that have felt the draw cannot help but respond to the draw are the only ones that can be saved. If you're not saved, you've never been drawn. If you've never, been, uh, if you've never responded, you've never been drawn. You can't respond unless you've been drawn. You're only drawn if God decides you're drawn. All of that can come from this thought, except that Jesus Christ said here, and this is not the only reason, we, we see many times in Scripture the, errant, the, the errors of that theology, But here, Jesus Christ says, if I be lifted up, I will draw some men unto me. I will draw the elect unto me. I will draw those whom I choose unto me. No. I will draw all men unto me. Every man. Every man is drawn by the Spirit of God and given the opportunity to respond to that call. Not every man responds properly. Not every man accepts. But all men have been drawn. Verse 33 tells us plainly that Jesus Christ was announcing the manner of His death here, that He would be raised upon a tree, seen in the Old Testament teaching as a symbol of shame and a symbol of reproach to the one who was lifted up according to Deuteronomy 21. 23, that the man who is lifted up upon a tree is a man who is accursed. And yet we see as well that this curse that he was made was for us. He was made a curse for us. Now as we offer ourselves as yielded vessels to God in evangelism, 
we must position ourselves to be used by God. As we position ourselves to be used of God, however, as we offer ourselves as yielded vessels, as God is able to use us to give the gospel to others, we cannot forget that it is God and the Spirit of God specifically that does the work. It is the Spirit of God, according to John 16, 8, we'll get there in a few weeks, that convicts man of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. It is not our job to force people into heaven. It is not our job to manipulate people into heaven, but to compel them to make a personal decision and accept the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ as God is drawing them unto Him. Principle number one, be a yielded vessel. Principle number two, recognize who does the work. Third principle on verses 34 through 36, remember that time is short. Remember that time is short. Though Jesus has announced his death many times, the people surrounding him are still confused by this proclamation that he will be lifted up. He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. The idea of being lifted up there, they knew what it meant. They knew he would be hung on a tree. They knew he was signifying the manner of his death. And they're confused. Notice what they say in verse 34. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus, when you said the Son of Man, we always thought you were talking about yourself but you called yourself the Christ. We know from the Old Testament that Jesus Christ is going to be, going to live, going to abide, going to exist forever. If Jesus Christ is going to exist forever, then how is it that, or how is it then that Christ will be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man that is to lift it up? It can't be Christ, because Christ won't die. And they were right about the fact that Christ abideth forever. Psalm 89 verse 36 says, His seed shall endure forever and His throne as the sun before me. Speaking of the Davidic line, the Messianic line. Psalm 110.4 says, The Lord, uh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the word for Jehovah, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the book of Hebrews, we have the explanation of that, that Messiah would abide forever, would reign forever. That as Melchizedek in the scriptures is not recorded as having a beginning or an end, so too Messiah is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that he has no beginning, that he has no end, that he will abide forever. And so the people are asking here, Jesus, who is this son of man? Because you said you're the Christ, which means you're going to abide forever, but you just said that you must be lifted up or the son of man must be lifted up. We thought you were the son of man. How does this work? Now, Jesus' response drove straight to the heart of their greatest understanding that they needed something more than just a political savior. They needed something more than just a national savior. They needed a spiritual savior. They needed a renewal of their mind. They needed to see that the eternal Christ, that the one who will abide forever can in fact die and indeed must die if they're ever to be with him in eternity. Jesus taught this in a parallel passage in Luke 17. Let me read to you Luke 17 verse 24 and 25. 
Jesus Christ speaking of the last days. He says, For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. See, Isaiah 53 tells us that the Messiah must be a man that bears our sorrows, that is rejected of men. And so Jesus Christ, to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the law and the prophets, cannot just come as conquering king. He must come as suffering servant. And so He is indeed going to die. He says, I must first suffer many things and I must first be rejected of this generation. Then He says, then I'll come. Then you'll see your political king, your Savior politically, your Savior nationally, but first, you must receive me spiritually. We've seen Jesus use the terminology He's using here before in verses 35 and 36. Notice what Jesus says. Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. Jesus stated in John 8 verse 12 that He was the light of the world. He stated in John 9 verse 4 that He needed to work the works of God while it was yet day. He stated in John 11 verse 9 that while He walked in the day, He would not or could not stumble. And so as Jesus compels the men and the women that are surrounding Him in John 12, He compels them that while they have the light, while the light is available, they need to walk in the light. He is compelling them to accept the truth of God while the truth of God is still available. Because the time is coming, ladies and gentlemen. The time is coming and it could be tonight. The time is coming and it's coming very soon when the season of accepting the gospel will be over. And the time of judgment will be at hand. And when the time is over, the time is over. There's no more opportunity. There's no more chances. There's no second chance. There's no purgatory. There's no earning your way back in. There's no second life where you might just be able to make it. When it's over, it's over. There's one chance. Time is short. The evangelistic application is evident. As we are yielded vessels, allowing God to draw men unto Him through our preaching, through our teaching, through our testimony, we recognize that we work with limited time. There is limited time for us to tell. There is limited time for men to repent. This should give us an urgency. It should give us a boldness. It should inspire our message to be one not just of proclamation, but also of persuasion. See, people need to hear that time is short. Principle number one, how to be an effective evangelist. Well, be a yielded vessel. Principle number two, how to be an effective evangelist. Recognize who does the work. God does the work. Principle number three, how to be an effective evangelist. Remember that time is short. Number four, principle number four, in verses 37 to 43, a lack of converts, a lack of of those who accept the message is not a failure. 
A lack of converts is not a failure. Look with me in verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. What a statement. But notice verse 38, that the saying of Esaias, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? To whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Esaias saith again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Esaias when he saw his glory, and spake of him. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Here we have the tragic reality that John has taught as a parallel theme throughout the entire epistle of John. There are men that, regardless of what they know, regardless of what they understand, regardless even of what they've seen, simply will not believe. They have hardened their hearts against the gospel. They have hardened their hearts against the the truth. It is not that they cannot believe, but it is that they will not believe. It is not that they don't have the option to believe. It is rather that they have no inclination within themselves at all to yield their personal rights, their perceived personal rights, and submit themselves before the Almighty God. And in their refusal to believe, In Jesus, they have, in fact, become the fulfillment of a prophecy, two different prophecies, in fact, of Isaiah long ago when he said in Isaiah 53, 1, these words, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And again, they conformed to the foreknowledge of the prophecy of Isaiah when he said in Isaiah 6, verse 10, Make the hearts of this people fat, and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and be converted and be healed. In verses 42 and 43, we see a nevertheless. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. But... The scriptures say they would not confess him because if they did, they would have been thrown out of the synagogue. And verse 43 summarizes their apprehension. Why were they so apprehensive about being thrown out of the synagogue? Because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now the question has to be asked here. Were these men saved? Were these men saved? It says that they believed but they did not confess him because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. What we see here and what we see oftentimes in the scriptures is that the term belief can mean different things and does not always mean belief unto salvation. Therefore, as we witness to people, belief must be carefully defined. See, Jesus Christ would say this in Matthew 10, verses 37 through 39. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. And he that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. This is the same thing that Jesus Christ was talking about earlier in the passage when he was speaking about the corn of wheat. Jesus Christ is not saying that we have to hate our parents or hate our children. He is not saying we have to reject fellowship with them. He is not even saying that we have to to hate our lives in the sense of loathing. What he's saying is we have to place everything in our lives, whether it's our parents, whether it's our children, our family, our friends, our material possessions, our own life, we have to place them as lower in value than Jesus Christ. And that is belief unto salvation. That is what it means to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. That we are taking the the truth of Jesus Christ and we are putting it on a higher plane in our hearts than all that we, uh, everything else that we hold in this life. The man who is ashamed of Jesus Christ is not a man who has been regenerated by Jesus Christ. The man who loves the praise of men more than the praise of God is not the man who has been saved, is not a man who has accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not a man whose mind has been changed about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we see that saving belief is far more than simply understanding or even agreement with a message. James tells us that even the devils believe and tremble at God. Even the devils know that God is God and they believe and they tremble. Even the devils are in agreement that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Even the devils are in agreement that Jesus is God Himself. The devils, when they were possessed by men while Jesus was walking upon this earth, bowed before Him. They asked His permission to do things. They recognized the authority of Jesus Christ and they would not dare go against it. Because Jesus is God. But saving belief is not just understanding that Jesus is God, not even agreeing that Jesus is God. Saving belief is aligning our lives with the message of God as it relates to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is me saying, I see it, I understand it, I agree with it, and I'm aligning myself with it. It's a change of mind. It is turning to God. While these men, these men among the chief rulers, understood the message and even believed the message to be true. They knew Jesus was Messiah. They knew that He fulfilled the prophecies. They saw His works. They knew that His works were the works of God. They refused to align themselves with the message. Because if they had... They would have lost the praise of the men that were around them. And the praise of men was far too important to them to sacrifice it for the message of Jesus Christ. Now, if this is not speaking of salvation, why was it mentioned? It, I believe it is mentioned to show the various fulfillments of Isaiah's prophecy. In Isaiah 6, we see a people blind and deaf unwilling to hear the message of Messiah. A people who close their eyes so that they simply cannot see that He is Messiah. But in Isaiah 53, we see the question asked, Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? When the message of Messiah would come, which among those who hear it will believe it? 
Who among those of understanding, who among those who know that this is Messiah, would be willing to submit themselves before Messiah, who bore their grief and their sorrow, according to Isaiah 53? And so I believe, personally, what the passage is doing here is it's showing the fulfillment of Isaiah 6 in the people who were simply blind to Messiah and they were showing the, uh, the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 in these chief rulers who, though they knew who he was, loved the praise of God more than the praise of men. And so we see that a lack of converts is not a sign of failure. It is a sign of a man's condition. If the number of converts was a sign of success, then Jonah, the most stubborn and rebellious prophet on record in the Old Testament, was without doubt the most successful prophet in the Old Testament. But you see, numbers is not a gauge of success. Now certainly, the men in Nineveh repented because of the work of God. But God's standard for success has never been how many people you're able to convert. Success is when God's word is proclaimed God's way and when God's work is able to be done God's way through God's people. How to be an effective evangelist. Number one, be a yielded vessel. Number two, recognize who does the work. Number three, remember that time is short. Number four, a lack of converts is not a failure. Number five and finally, Never lose sight of the source of your message. Never lose sight of the source of your message. Found in verses 44 through 50. These last seven verses of John 12, in them Jesus speaks a similar message to that which he has spoken many times before. In verse 44, he says that the man who receives him receives Jehovah God. In verse 45, he says that the man who has seen him has seen God. In verse 46, Jesus' message brings the light of truth and life. In verses 47 and 48, Jesus says that he will not judge those who do not accept him and his message. Rather, the very message itself, the word of God itself, will judge them on the day they stand before God. Jesus Christ will not need to stand on the right hand of God on the day of judgment and accuse you or judge you for whether you have accepted or not accepted the scriptures. Because all that God would need to do is open the Scriptures themselves and the Scriptures will testify, will judge every man on that day. The Scriptures, that neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That verse alone could judge men on the day they stand before God. Have you come to me through Jesus? Well, no. Well, then you can't come to me. Verses 47 and 48. Jesus came to bring life, but with that life came a warning and a message of judgment. And that is the message that will accuse men on judgment day. In verses 49 and 50, as Jesus closes out this discourse, he again emphasizes that he has not spoken of himself or by himself, but rather his message is God's message. Jesus has come as a reflection of God to men. God's word is life everlasting to those who receive it, and Jesus is delivering God's word to men through his actions and through his speech. And so our final principle encourages us in this way. The source of the message which we preach in evangelism, 
The source of the message which Danielle heard on Thursday night. The source of the message which Robin and Ron have heard. The source of the message which Farron has heard and will hear again. The source of the message is not you. When you tell people that Christ died for them, you are not presenting your own wisdom. You are presenting God's wisdom. When you tell others what sin is, you are not judging them. You are reflecting the judgment of God to them. You never need to be afraid of the message or ashamed of the message because it's not your message. It's God's message. You're just telling them what God has to say. By extension, if it's not your message, then you better not change the message. Then you better not alter the message. You better not dumb the message down. You better not try to make the message that can be somewhat unpleasant acceptable by leaving things out. You have no right to change the message because it's not your message. It's God's message. When you change the message, it becomes your message. And when it's your message, it has no power. It has no effect because it's your message. The message that we are called to deliver is God's message. Don't change it, but don't be ashamed of it. Don't be afraid to give it because it's not your message. We've looked at five principles this evening. Principle number one, be a yielded vessel. As you go out as an evangelist, principle number one of evangelism, be a yielded vessel. Be willing to be used by God. Principle number two of an effective evangelist, recognize the one who does the work. Principle number three of an effective evangelist, remember that time is short. Is there an urgency in your heart? Principle number four of effective evangelism, a lack of converts is not a failed ministry. A lack of delivering the message if the reason why you have no converts is because you've never told anyone of the gospel, well, that's a failure. But if you're telling, if you're living, and no one's come to Christ, there's no failure. There's no failure there. Because we are messengers of a message. Principle number four, excuse me, number five, final principle. Never lose sight of your source. The source of the message is not you. It is God.